The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are continuing to work our way through 1 Thessalonians. We looked last week at verses 1 through 5, and we saw that Paul was really concerned about the Thessalonians. He's just afraid that, you know, they left too quickly, they haven't been taught enough, I'm afraid they're just going to fall away from the faith. And at personal cost to himself, he was left alone at Athens and then left alone in Corinth. And so he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica because he just wants to hear what's going on. He wants him to be able to encourage them and help them out. We ended last week with verse 5. Let's go over that again. He says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So he says, for this reason, when I couldn't bear it any longer, and he says this twice, he says in verse 1, he says again in verse 5, I just couldn't stand it any longer. I had to know. I had to find out, how are you doing? And because Paul couldn't go himself, and we're not sure all the details there, but he said Satan hindered him, he sent Timothy. And we don't know how Timothy got there, whether he traveled by land or by sea, but whatever route or means of transportation he took, it's not a short trip. The trip from Athens to Thessalonica is about 220 miles. And if he went overland, the journey would have taken him take about 10 to 11 days to walk that far. And he figured he probably spent at least a week there with the Thessalonians and then traveling back. So he's probably been gone for over a month. You know, it's not like in our day when you send a text and, you know, immediately you get a response or you send an email and you Depends on who you send it to. You get a quick response or you don't get any response. <laughs> he had to send Timothy personally to travel all that ways to get there, find out what's going on, try to encourage them, and then come back. So Paul, is he's just greatly concerned. And he's praying constantly that the persecution had not caused these believers to turn from the Lord. Paul says that his fear was that Somehow, the tempter had tempted you, and your, our labor, he said, would be in vain. Now, the tempter here, we didn't talk much about this last time because I was running out of time, but the tempter here is a reference to Satan. I'm sure you all understand that. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 5. He says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come again, so Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right? So he's telling them, Satan here, calling Satan the tempter. We also see in Matthew 4.3 that uh, Satan is tempting Christ. He says, Then Yeshua was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So I think we're, we understand the tempter is the devil, you Satan. Satan, his demons, they were real spirit beings who opposed Yahweh and his people. Now, in many texts where Satan is mentioned, it could be talking about the people that Satan was using. But we have to understand that behind those people is the spiritual power 
of Satan, the divine being. And although the Thessalonians' contemporaries were definitely driving this persecution, the power of the tempter was orchestrating this spiritual battle. Now, through the ministry of Christ, all these demons, Satan, they were all defeated and destroyed in AD 70 at the return of Christ when the judgment took place. But this is something they're dealing with. We're not dealing with this. Now, when we see the word translated here, tempt, tempt can be neutral in the sense of test, or it can be negative in the sense of tempting with a view towards destruction. And obviously, Satan's intent is obviously to disable the Thessalonians' faith. The temptation of the tempter was not simply to commit some sin or some sins. He's trying to get them to commit the sin of apostasy, to leave the faith, to walk away from the faith, to give up on it. And Paul was concerned that his labor, he says, would be in vain. And I think he's concerned here because he knew the pain of people trying to destroy his ministry. Because everywhere he went, people were coming in behind him, the Judaizers. After he left, they come into Galatia with a false gospel. And they're trying to mess up everything he's done. Some people in Corinth had turned on him, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 19-21. And there was a certain group of Christians scheming to make it miserable for him at Rome. He says in Philippians 1, 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. That's kind of a crazy way to share the gospel, right? Out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So people are doing things just to make things more miserable for Paul. So he knew that because of persecutions and because of the temptations, that apostasy, these Thessalonian young believers, it was possible for them to turn from the faith. So he anxiously is waiting for Timothy to bring him news. He most likely, like I said, was waiting over a month. And then in verse 6 it says, But now, that Timothy has come to us from you. So Timothy's back. And he has brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Now, I hope you get the contrast here. Verse 5, he's anxious, he's, he's concerned, what's going on with them? And then all of a sudden, but now, Timothy's back. There's a contrast here. Paul's anxiety and his present condition of ecstatic joy are really compared here. This is a drastic change. And thank God for the but nows in Scripture. Look at this one in Ephesians. This is a great one. Ephesians 2.12. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This was the condition of all of us, with no hope, without God in the world. And then the next verse says, But now, in Christ Yeshua, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So again, this denotes the contrast between their present condition and that prior to your conversion And we need to just thank God for the but-nows in Scripture, that there's a drastic change. Now, Paul's but-now in our text is not quite as dramatic as the one we see there in Ephesians, but it's close to it, and we'll see that in a minute. See, Paul was so thrilled with the news that he sat down as soon as Timothy got back and he wrote him. He heard word from Timothy, he writes this letter and gets this sent off to him. He says, and he has brought us the good news. Now, we saw from the last verse that Paul feared the worst. He was really worried that 
They might have left the faith, but the news was the best. And the words good news here are translation of the Greek word euangelizo. Does that ring a bell to anybody? The Greek verb euangelizo means to bring or announce good news. The noun euangelion means good news. And so both these words are derived from the noun angelos, which means messenger. In classical Greek, euangelos was one who brought a message of victory or other political or personal news that caused joy. So the noun euangelion became a technical term for the message of victory, though it was also used for political or private messages that brought joy. Here's what's interesting here. This is the only use of euangelizo in the New Testament where it does not refer to the gospel of Christ. See, that's kind of a technical term, euangelizo. Every time they preach the gospel, they're preaching about Christ. And Paul is using it here for the news he got. Okay? Which is an interesting use of this word here. So Paul takes the term that's reserved for the message of salvation by grace through faith, and he says it was that kind of good news. It was thrilling news that he heard. The news from Timothy was that they were good ground. They weren't rocky soil. They weren't weedy soil. They didn't get choked out or burned off. They were good ground, and they were producing fruit in Thessalonica. He says, the news about your faith and your love. Now, this phrase can have different meanings. It can refer to their orthodox doctrine, their faith, and to their loving care for one another, or it could refer to their faithfulness to God and their love toward God, but really doesn't matter. Both of them work here. And what we have to understand is Paul often links faith and love. He links those two, and they need to be linked. We saw that earlier in this letter. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3, he says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Yeshua, the Christ. Now notice what Paul says to the Galatians. He says, For in Christ Yeshua... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, I want to remind you this morning, the idea that faith works through love. The word works is from the Greek word anergo, which means to be operative, to be at work, to put forth power, to show oneself operative. Our faith is to put forth power And it does that through love. Now, we just, not that long ago, a couple weeks ago, we're looking at James 2. And I want to remind you what James has to say about this, because James connected this, and we connected these when we were looking at James. James 2, 17 says, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Remember we talked about that, a dead faith. Now, a dead faith is not a fake faith. It's a real faith. It's just died because it's not producing anything. And James' point we talked about was works are actually the key to the vitality of your faith. And James' analogy shows he is writing about the necessity of having works if our faith is to stay healthy, if our faith is to stay alive. James is writing to Christians. And he's saying, unless we act on our faith and live it out, our faith rapidly decays into dead orthodoxy. So James is telling us that good works 
are the spirit which animates the entire body. And without such works, our faith will die. It will atrophy. This doesn't affect our eternal destiny, all right? But it does affect our temporal life and the preserving of our life from judgment. And that was James' whole point there. If your faith is not alive, if it's not living, it's going to cost you here and now in this life. So what are the works? What's he talking about? Well, I think if we examine the context of James chapter 2, we see that works that James is talking about are love. In James 2.8, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you're doing well. Now, this is exactly what Paul told the Galatians. He says that faith works through love. So if your faith doesn't produce love, then James says it's a dead faith and it's in danger of temporal judgment. See, the moral dynamic of faith is love. Because faith is invisible. A person's possession of faith is dependent on their verbal testimony alone. You can't see somebody's faith. If you see them doing something, then you say, well, they're acting, they're doing something in love. But faith is static. But love is never static. Love is always active. And love is obedience to God's revealed will. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the proof of love. It's obedience. It's active. It does something. And without it, James is saying, your faith will die. Now, verse 17 says that if faith is by itself, if there's no love, then it's dead. Now, J. Hampton Keithley III writes this. He says, the point is that a stable, growing, and active faith will lead to acts of love. And that's true. If your faith is alive, if it's growing, it's going to demonstrate itself in love. An active faith, one living in the light of the gospel and the person of God and His promise, will be productive in loving ministry for others. A person's faith can be real. A genuine trust in Christ, but it can become dormant and unfocused and fundamentally unfruitful unfruitful because of carnality or failure to walk and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Amen. Somebody who's not lordship and who understands that your faith can be real. A genuine trust in Christ, but it can become dormant if you're not acting on it. Now, when Timothy witnessed the Thessalonians' faith in God, when he saw their love for one another and their love for God, it was evident that they had not yielded to the tempter, but had tenaciously held to the gospel and were the good soil. They were producing fruit. Their faith had endured Satan temptations and the Jews' assaults. John Calvin calls these two qualities, faith and love. He said this, the entire sum of true piety. So to him, that's what it's all about. If you have faith and you have love, that's the sum of entire piety. Calvin went on to say this. He says, hence, all that aim at this twofold mark during their whole life are beyond risk of erring. In other words, if you're going to live like this, you're going to stay solid. You're going to be good. You're walking in faith. You're exercising love. And then he says this, All others, however, much they may torture themselves, wander miserably. In other words, if you're not living it out, it's going to cost you. You're going to drift away. I agree with Calvin on that. So he says that Timothy came to him. He reported about their faith and love. And he says he reported that you always remember us kindly 
and long to see us as we long to see you. So this is the second aspect of the good news. The persecution, nor the false teachers, had embittered this church against Paul. Far from having a bad memory of Paul and his companions or hostility toward them for leaving them, they had warm and affectionate memories. Their separation from the church was only physical, not emotional. Remember, there's people in Thessalonica and they said, listen, if Paul would have loved you, he never would have left in such a hurry, or he'd have turned around and got back here quick, and because he hasn't come back, he doesn't care about you, and he was just worried that they're, they're turning on him. So Timothy shows up in Corinth and he said, Paul... They're doing awesome. Okay? These young believers are doing great. They're in love with Yahweh. They are in love with you also, Paul. They're standing their ground and their faith is growing and they're bearing fruit. They love you, Paul. And they're anxious to see you again as soon as they can. And so Paul is just, he's elated with this news. And he says, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So Paul says, I'm going through a lot, but this is very comforting news, okay? I feel, I feel better about this. Now, when he says, in all our distress and afflictions, it's not hyperbole for Paul, okay? He'd been going through hard times in every city where he preached the gospel. He was unjustly beaten, put in stocks, and thrown in prison at Philippi. He was forced to leave Thessalonica because of persecution, And so he goes to Berea, and the Thessalonians followed him to Berea and drove him out of Berea also. All right? Stirred up the crowds there. He saw some fruit in Athens, but mostly got a lot of jeers and rejection. Paul wrote this letter from Corinth. All right? He's in Corinth when he's writing to the Thessalonians. And his coming to that city was marked by difficulty. He said of his coming to Corinth, he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. So Paul's problem in Corinth, I think, are stated in Acts 18.6. He says, And when they opposed and reviled him, speaking of Paul, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul is facing this affliction in Corinth along with the distress. Now, what's interesting, both these words... Affliction and distress are used together in Job 15.24 in the Septuagint of one who is terrified and overpowered. Now remember, Paul's alone at Corinth, and usually he's traveling with a team because it's a dangerous situation, all right, to be alone in anything, but when you're, especially when you're preaching the gospel. So he's in Corinth, and he's being persecuted, and people are coming against him, and he is in distress, He is terrified. He is being overpowered. It's no wonder that the Lord appeared to Paul in Corinth and said to him, He says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So God literally had to come to Paul and say, It's okay, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't be terrified of what's going on. I have people here. You're going to reach them with the gospel. So in the midst of intense pressure over preaching the gospel, the good news from Thessalonica comforted Paul, and it brought him great joy. He says, we have been comforted about you through your faith. When he heard that they're standing firm in the faith, he's reassured that he had not labored in vain. And he's just excited to hear this. Now, in a passage that's very similar to this one, 
Paul speaks about his own afflictions and how the coming of Titus with the news from the church also brought him encouragement. Look at the, how similar this text is in 2 Corinthians 7, 6, and 7. He says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So in our text, he's talking about the coming of Timothy, brought him comfort. Now Titus come and brought him good news. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So he told us that you want to see me, you guys love me still. So again, the same kind of good news, but from a different church. Now what Paul says next is pretty amazing. He says this, For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. Now we live. (laughs) Boy, you ought to read the commentaries on this one. It's interesting. You want a good laugh? Read some good commentaries on this. I think Paul here is using metaphorical language to express his release from the anxiety that he was going through about this church. I mean, he's burdened down with this anxiety, and all of a sudden his anxiety is lifted, and he's like, wow, this is exciting. Now we live. See, when Paul received this word from Timothy, he's in the midst of persecutions, and he's literally in the dangers of death at Corinth. He's afraid at Corinth. So maybe for him and his companions, the good news about the church was like a resurrection. He's like, wow, this, this burden is lifted off me. I just feel great. The news was life-giving, and that's probably why he called it Yangalidzo. It was like the gospel coming to him. It brought life. And I think maybe there's some reason for him using that word. Now, commenting on the words, for now we live, G.K. Beale writes this. Now, Beale is well-known, he's a commentator, theologian, but sometimes, okay, you just look at this, all right. Here's what Beale writes. The mention of living, however, is probably not figurative, but refers to actual salvific life in relationship with God. The successful outcome of their life in Christ is a fruit demonstrating the genuineness of Paul's own life in Christ. Do you see what he's saying there? I read this and I'm like, what did you just say? And I sent it to Bob and I said, Bob, what did he just say? Am I reading this correctly? And he thought I was. And I sent it to Jeff. And I never got an answer, so I don't know what Jeff thinks. (laughs) No, Jeff and I talked about it this morning and he didn't didn't see it quite as uh, severe as I did. But what I see him saying here is Paul is, is demonstrating the genuineness of his life in Christ on their response to the gospel. In other words, boy, I'm so glad that, you know, we're, we're alive now because what you did. So my question is, what if they had fallen from the faith that Paul feared so much? Would that mean Paul wasn't saved? The successful outcome of their life in Christ is a fruit demonstrating the genuineness of Paul's life in Christ. People, you don't get, you don't get a demonstration from what other people are doing about your relationship with Christ. Okay? Your relationship with Christ is between you and Christ and your trust in Him. If you think because I got a successful ministry going on here, I'm something. I'm good. I'm good with God. And your ministry falls apart, then what? Has God left you? It's not based on that, people. Paul's joy was based on that. 
His salvation was not. So I'm not sure what Beale's trying to say here, but he didn't say it very well, whatever he's trying to say. Because how does somebody's fruitfulness demonstrate the genuineness of Paul's life in Christ? Are you familiar with the expression, get a life? You ever heard anybody said that to you? <laughs> get a life. What does that mean when someone tells you that? What does it mean? It's often said to someone who finds pleasure in something that others regard as insignificant. Okay, the thing, this thing matters to you and you're all excited about it and people look at you and say, get a life, man. If that's what you're excited about, that's what, you know, that's nothing. That's just stupid. So that's how we use that. Well, I think many believers today, I think your average Christian and your average church today would say to Paul, get a life. I mean, because for Paul... The real meaning of life was found in seeing believers become strong in their faith and stand for the Lord. That's where Paul found his joy. I mean, the faith of those God entrusted to him in his mission, the good news was not only comforted, but it's refreshed, rejuvenated, energized Paul. He's excited about their faith. He's excited about how they're doing. His well-being is deeply bound up with the Thessalonians' well-being. This is an illustration of other-centered living. It's quite a, quite a contrast from the me-centered mentality of our day. Paul's not finding his joy. I got a new car, I got a new house. I... Paul's joy is found in man. I am so excited. I live because you are doing well in your faith for Christ. And like I said, most Christians say, get a life. No, that is a life. That is a true spiritual life. It's his life is just bound around the spiritual and what God is doing in people's lives. So let me ask you, what if? I mean, it might be interesting to ask what Paul's response would have been if Timothy had told him the Thessalonians have fallen from the faith. They've given up. They don't care about this anymore. They don't want to see you again. They say you're a false prophet. Well, I would say, first of all, that would have been like a death for Paul would have grieved him to his core. It certainly wouldn't have been a profound disappointment. But I'm sure if that ha- did happen, Paul would continue to pray for them. And I think he would be determined to go back and visit them again to find out what was going on to see if he could straighten the situation out. He wasn't a man to give up without a fight. And so I think he would have worked to try to get back there. But it was like a life to him. He was just so wrapped up in them. It was like a life. And he says this, if you are, we live, now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. Now, this is an unusual conditional sentence here. It combines a first and a third class condition in this one sentence. All right, first class condition, yes, if and it's so. Third class condition, maybe yes, maybe no. So he's saying, you are standing fast, but you got to keep standing fast, is kind of what he's trying to say here. It adds a contingency to Paul's statement. He assumed that they would stand fast, and they were at the time, but that remained to be seen, he's saying. It possesses a, also a type of exhortation. In other words, you're standing fast, but keep standing fast. Don't give up on that. The Berean Study Bible translates it like this. For now, we can go on living, as long as you're standing firm in the Lord. All right, and they were at that time, but he says, will this keep on happening? Will you keep standing firm in the Lord? Now, 
Standing firm here in both these texts is from the Greek word stako. This word is found only in the New Testament. It's a late Kone Greek word, and it's a military term. All right? It means to be at point in a war, to stand fast, to be stabilized. It's used of a soldier who won't budge from his post no matter how bad the battle gets. So this is what he's telling them. Stand fast. You're in a battle. Don't move. Don't run. Don't duck. Stay there. Hold that post against all odds. Stand fast. That's what it's about. And Paul is telling them, you guys remain at your post. Don't move. Don't compromise with error. Don't compromise with sin. Don't don't compromise in your doctrine or your conduct. Stand fast. Man, do we need people doing this today, okay? Over and over, Paul told the believers in all the churches to stand fast. To the Corinthians, he wrote, be watchful, stand firm, same word, stako, in the faith, act like men. And what's a man act like? Be strong. Okay, this eliminates so many of our soy boys today, all right? But stand fast, we're calling to be men. Stand fast, you're in a battle. To the Galatians, he wrote, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, stako, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Stand your ground. To the Philippians, he wrote, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand fast, stako, thus in the Lord, my beloved. So he's calling for loyalty to the Lord. You know, the world is full of Christians on the retreat. Christians living in sin. Well, how do we stand fast? How do we do, how do we fulfill this exhortation? Well, he says, in the Lord. And this is a call for Christ-centered life. It's called for living in dependence upon the Lord for His strength. Notice what Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 6. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now, the word he uses here for stand here is the Greek word, Histemi. Our word stako comes from the perfect tense of histemi. So in Ephesians 6, it clarifies what it means by in the Lord. See, we're not fighting Satan, demons, or gods today as they were at that time. But believers, I guess, I hope you understand, we're in a battle. Okay? We fight to maintain relationships. We battle with our own fleshly lusts and desires. Life is a struggle. And as Christians, we battle the worldview and regulations of non-believers. And I mean, we're just being inundated right now with it. You know, with the news media and all their just forcing all their garbage, their liberal views and agendas down our throat. Okay? And if you're not a homosexual, if you're not a transgender, you're just not even in the in crowd at all. And that's okay. I'm not trying to be in that in crowd at all. All right? 
And they want to take what's perverted and make it normal. All right? Now, but we, 21st century believers, we're not fighting against powers. We're not fighting world forces of darkness or cosmic. It's not in this cosmic battle. The battle was fought and won by Christ 2,000 years ago. All right? But we are told, I still believe, that we are in a battle, and so the, the, here the armor of God is still as functional today as it was then. He says be strong here, and literally be, it means be continually strengthened. In the original text, it's in the present tense. The passive verb suggests that we're not the ones who strengthen ourselves, but that continually we depend on the Lord to give us strength. Now, the prepositional phrase, in the Lord, this denotes the sphere from which the strength comes. This is how we stand. We're to stand fast, we're to be strong in the Lord, or in union with the Lord. So Paul is commanding us to be strong in the Lord, and this rests, I think, on the first two chapters where he's made it clear what it means to be in the Lord, the first two chapters of Ephesians. The phrase, in the Lord, refers to Christ, not to God. Well, not to the Father. All right, Christ is God. That refers to Christ, which is consistent throughout this epistle. All right. The strong Christian is one who has come to see more and more of his own weakness and propensity towards sin. And so they're not trusting themselves. They're relying on God. And that awareness drives him to depend all the more on the Lord's strength for any and everything. While David was on the run from Saul, he allied himself with the Philistine king, and he's about to go into battle against Saul and the forces of Israel with the Philistines. But God intervenes, and David and his men were sent home from the battle. There were some smart Philistine leaders there, and they said, wait a minute, this guy, he's not coming into battle with us. We're fighting the people he was king over. No, we're not doing this, okay? We're not going to do that. So they sent him home. Well, David arrived to find that the city had been burned with fire, their wives and their children, their possessions were taken captive by the Amalekites. And at that point, David's men were so embittered that they were talking about stoning him. And in 1 Samuel 36, it says, David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in Yahweh his God. So David strengthens himself in Yahweh, and Yahweh graciously directed David to pursue the raiders. They recovered all their family, all their children. They didn't lose anything. They went and got all their stuff back, and everything was fine. But he trusted, he got his strength from the Lord. That same strength that David depended on is available for Christians today. You may be at your lowest point. You may be discouraged. It may seem that God's promises are not true. But no matter how much may seem to be against you, you can be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We can have confidence to face pressures, adverse circumstances, hostile powers, knowing that God has put into our lives a power so strong that it raised Christ from the dead. And that power is available to every believer who puts their trust in Christ. From start to finish, the Bible proclaims the mighty power of Yahweh. When fierce enemies threatened to annihilate His chosen people, time and time again, Yahweh provided deliverance. 
And you, if you're familiar with the Bible, you read through there, and it's just like they sinned, God judged, they cried out, God comes back. You know, as soon as they disobeyed, their life was miserable. When they obeyed life, their obeyed God, their life was great. I mean, people, <laughs> you know, you got to take a clue from this, okay? Let's obey God. Let's do what He wants from us, you know, and life's going to be a lot better. He provided deliverance. One of the most dramatic instances, Sennacherib had brought his army in Jerusalem, and they surrounded Jerusalem. And it looked like Israel's doomed. All right? But in response to Hezekiah's prayer, Yahweh delivered his people. And 2 Kings 19, 35 and 36 says, And that night the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 of the camp of the Assyrians. So the Assyrians are out there and they're mocking Israel. What's gonna, how are you going to get out of us? We're, you think your God's going to save you? Da, da, we, we're not afraid of your God. And so the Israelites don't have to do anything. The angel of the Lord goes out and wipes out 185,000 of them. And I love this. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So they get up, everybody's dead. That's a great war, right? Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. Often throughout the scripture, Yahweh reminds his people of the obvious, that nothing is too difficult for him. And our strength comes from our dependence upon the union that we have with him. Ephesians 6.11, he says, put on the whole armor of God. You may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now the words of God here are genitives of origin, indicating that God provides the armor. Now, please keep that in mind. The armor of God comes from God, okay? They're to put on the armor so that they can stand. Now, stand here is a key word in this section. He repeats it in verses 11, 13, and 14. And the word withstand in 6.13 comes from a Greek compound from that root to stand, meaning literally to stand against. Again, it's a military term for holding on to a position that is under attack. I believe that we're to hold our position, we're to stand theologically against all attacks. And to stand, we have to have on the armor of God. Now, do you remember where Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians from? Where was Paul when he wrote this? Prison, Prison, right. He is in prison, writing this letter. He's in prison at Rome. And he's in chains. In Ephesians 6.20 it says, For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. So he's chained up and he's standing before him, Roman soldiers. All right. So many have suggested that Paul got the idea of putting on the full armor of God from the armor of the Roman soldier. And that may have been, but also I think that it was he was thinking more about Isaiah. Isaiah 1.5 says this, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Or he may be thinking of Isaiah 49 that says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away, and he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Or maybe he was thinking of chapter 59, verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now, what do these texts from Isaiah 
have in common? Well, if you're familiar with Isaiah, you'll recognize immediately Isaiah 11 is the great chapter on the Messianic King and how He's going to come and establish the kingdom. Isaiah 49 is one of the great servant of Yahweh's songs. And Isaiah 59 is a Messianic chapter. It has to do with Christ. All three of these passages then are passages that speak of the Lord Yeshua, the Christ, as the warrior King of God. Now the fact that he draws this description from the Old Covenant Messianic passages suggests that he's really thinking of Yeshua as the warrior. And we are in him, and therefore we have his strength, his power, his authority. In the trials of life, we trust in him. We put on the Lord. He's the armor. So I think the armor is just a graphic way of saying what Paul said in Romans 13. Put on the Lord Yeshua the Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. In other words, Christ himself is the armor. Now, I want to just look at one piece of the armor this morning, because I think it's a key piece to standing fast. It's in Ephesians 6.15. And he says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, I think you understand that shoes are really important for stability. Okay? It's kind of hard to stand your ground if you can't stand. It's kind of hard to fight if you can't stand up. You can't do much of anything if you don't have good shoes on. The athlete needs the proper shoes, and so does the Christian, he's saying. Because shoes give us stability. Now, the gospel of peace is the good news of the gospel. Man was at war with God. Man was an enemy of God. But all those who have trusted Christ in His work on the cross are no longer enemies. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in the body of His flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. How does Christ present us to God? Holy, blameless, and above reproach. That is your position. You say, my practice doesn't match that. Yeah, I'm sure it doesn't, but it's supposed to. All right, that's your goal. You're working towards that. But this is your position before God. You are holy, you are blameless, you are above reproach. And the good news of the gospel is, through the finished work of Christ, we're at peace with God. God's on our side. We can take anything this fallen world throws on us, if we have the shoes that anchor us in the truth that God loves us. I'm immovable. I'm stable in the fact that God is on my side. And since God is on my side, I can stand fast. You're anchored in the fact that God is on your side. Now, Tim Shettington, in his commentary on Thessalonians, said this. He says, genuine faith is not destroyed by trials. And I'm like, really? Well, first of all, what is genuine faith? Is that opposed to fake faith or some other kind of faith? See, this is one of these lordship things where they start, you know, adding, you got to have the right faith, all right? Faith is faith, people. If you believe something, you believe it, all right? That's all there is to it. What is the object of your faith? That's the question, all right? Genuine faith is not destroyed. Well, if this is true, why was Paul so worried about the Thessalonians? Didn't he think their faith was real? I mean, he shared the gospel with them. He said they believed it. Why was he worried about him? See, I think Tim is just kind of promoting the lordship view that there's different kinds of faith, and you've got to make sure you have the right one. 
You've got to make sure your faith is genuine. How do we do that? It's just nonsense. It's not biblical, okay? Let's move on. Verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel your sake before God. Now, he's saying, what thanksgiving can we return to God? Their thankfulness to God and their overwhelming joy are expressed here in the form of a rhetorical question. This is a literary technique sometimes used to convey vivid emotion. The question that was posed is strikingly similar to that what the psalmist asks in Psalm 116.12, What shall I render to Yahweh for all his benefits to me? Now, the word return here is from the verb antapodidomi, which means to repay in either a positive or a negative sense. It frequently appears in Greek literature in the context of returning thanks for some benefit received. And Paul's just saying, how do we even begin to thank God for what he's doing in your lives? Seneca said this. He said, not to return gratitude for benefits is a disgrace. And the whole world counts it as such. I wouldn't say the whole world. But people should, all right? To not return gratitude for benefits, it's a disgrace. See, thanksgiving was understood as a debt that one owed to one's benefactor. And this principle was at the heart of Paul's thanksgiving to God for the Thessalonians. Because Paul and his co-workers... They felt they'd received a great gift from God. And that gift was the news that the Thessalonians are standing firm in the faith. That was, they were excited about that. And so now in response to that benefit, they seek a way to repay this debt by thanking God. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. It's just, this is incredible. How do we thank you for what you've done for us? See, the fact that the Christians in Thessalonica remained steadfast in their faith in spite of their afflictions, is not only due to their own merits, or it's not due to Paul's preaching, the credit goes to the grace of God working in their lives. And that's what he saw. This is about God. God is working there. So Paul thanks God. He says, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before the Lord. Why is Paul so joyful? Well, it's because the Thessalonians are standing fast in the Lord. You know, Lazarus expressed the same sentiment in 3 John 1, 3, and 4. He says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, and indeed you are walking in the truth. And he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. What brought Lazarus joy? To hear that his believers he had ministered to were walking in the truth. What brings Paul joy? That the Thessalonians are standing fast in the Lord. So let me ask you this. What brings you joy? Is it tied up in the spiritual health of other believers? Is that where your joy comes from? Or is it a worldly joy brought with some kind of material benefit? Paul says in verse 10, As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking, in your faith. Night and day, that's the Jewish order of time. We say day and night. They say night and day. The day started for them at sundown. So, night and day. And this reflects Paul's constant, persistent prayer life. He's just saying, I'm praying 
I'm constantly praying. Now, the adverb here, most earnestly, is a very strong triple compound. This word consists of hooper, which means above or beyond, above or beyond what we could ask or think. Then he joins with it ek, which intensifies the force of the verb, to which it's connected to a level of perfection. So what he is saying is hooper, above, ek, way above, and then the last words, ena, which means to exceed to a degree that is beyond all things that it can be. So what he's saying is, hooper ekena literally means to go beyond all things in an inexhaustible way. This word's only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's used in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Think about that. God's able to do way more than we could ask or think. According to the power at work within us. Same word. To go beyond all things in an inexhaustible way. So whatever you can imagine, Yahweh can do far more than that. He is unlimited in His power. He says that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. Now, did He eventually get to see them again? Well, the narrative in Acts and the geological notes in Pauline letters give us abundant evidence that God truly did get, grant this request, and Paul got to return to Macedonia. He got back to them. He got to see them again. Now, Paul had to keep praying for about five years before this request was granted. But it, So it took him about that long. It took him about five years until he could get back there and be with them again. But that was his desire He constantly prayed. He constantly worked towards that end. And the reason he wanted to get back was to supply what was lacking in your faith. Now, some people would take this like a slam. What? I got stuff lacking and you're going to fix it for me? Well, supply here is the Greek word katartizo, and it means to fit together or adjust, to restore, to repair, to equip. This word is used of setting bones that are broken. It's used of repairing a fishing net. It's used of healing a wounded relationship or supplying a military operation, which is the sense kind of employed here. Spiritually, it has the idea of making something what it ought to be. So I want to get back there. I want to supply what's lacking. I want to build up your faith. And it's not difficult to understand that a church that is not even a year old is going to be lacking in their faith. There's things they don't understand. There's things they haven't even been taught yet. So this is not a slam at all to them. Paul says, I just want to get back and help you in the faith. And the way that Paul would have completed what was lacking in their faith was, of course, by teaching them the Word of God. And this is very similar to his desire that he stated for the Romans in 111. He says, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He knew they were still babes in Christ. And they needed further instruction in the things of God in order to reach a more perfect obedience in the principles they had already been taught them. But he knew he had to get back and do it through the Word of God. They had to be taught the Word of God. Remember, they don't have a Bible. Okay? The Bible's not put together yet. All right? They get this letter from Paul, and that's what they got. And they're counting on that. And they have the Scriptures, you know, the Old Covenant Scriptures, they have those. Parts of them anyway. And so they're counting on that. And so Paul says, I want to get back there. I want to teach you. I want to instruct you in the Word of God to to build up your faith. 
Paul says, the joy that we feel for you. Oh, that we would be more like Paul, that we would find our truest joy in seeing believers standing fast in the Lord. Seeing believers maturing in the grace of God. That's where Paul's joy came from. You know, I think we fail to stand fast. When we fail to stand fast, everybody loses. It hurts the church. It hurts the testimony of the church. I mean, how does the world love to see a Christian fall and then, yeah, and point at that and make a big deal about it? So we need to help each other. We need to do all we can do to help one another to stand fast in the Lord, to encourage, to support, to lift one another up. That's what the body of Christ is all about. We talked about this recently, all the one another verses. Support one another, love one another, exhort one another. Comfort one another. That's the whole purpose of our coming together, people, is to strengthen and encourage one another. Yeah, we come together for teaching. I think that's a big part of what the church should be doing, is teaching the Word of God. But there's more to it than that, people. You don't just gather to be taught. You can be taught online. But you gather to be encouraged, to be supported, to be strengthened, to pray for one another, to encourage one another. You know, it's just an interesting text and Paul says, we live <laughs> if you stand fast in the Lord. His whole life, his whole joy was found in the spiritual strength, the spiritual growth of other believers. We've got a long way to go, people. <laughs> but we need to be working on it one step at a time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at this text. I thank you for Paul and his heart, Lord. It just... It seems amazing because I know when we're going through difficult times, when we're suffering, when we're hurting, it's hard to think about anything but ourselves. But here's Paul and all that he's dealing with. His focus is on others and the joy that floods his heart when he finds out they're doing well in the Lord. Father, it's sad that sometimes it seems we take joy in hearing other people fall. Strengthen us, Lord. Convict us. Teach us from your word. May our joy be found in the spiritual life of others and what you're doing in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.